Okay. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, and thank you so much for tuning in to the latest installment of this Writers Guild of Alberta interview series brought to you by Read Alberta. My name is Magda Malatu, and I am so, so thrilled to be chatting with a very, very special guest today. Um, Bertrand Bickerseth is in the Zoom room with me. Hey! How are you, Bertrand? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. I'm very glad to be here uh, joining you as your co-host in today's very special series. That's right. That's right. We are co-conspirators. I cannot uh, underemphasize that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to, for the folks that uh, may not know who you are, or may not be familiar with your work, um, I want to make sure I give you the proper introduction here. Um, so I'm going to read your bio quickly. Um, so Bertrand here lives on Treaty 7 territory in Mokinstis, aka Calgary. And we're going to talk today not just about this book, um, but it is a good one. So we're going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, his collection, The Response of Weeds, um, which came out in 2020 with uh, New West Press. Um, the Response of Weeds was a finalist or a winner for numerous prizes, um, including the W.O. Mitchell City of Calgary Book Prize and the Gerald Lampert Memorial Award, um, which it won. And Bertrand currently teaches at Olds College and writes about Black identity on the prairies. Um, crucial, crucial work, work that has um, made such a, an impact on me as a writer and as a, a Black Albertan. Um, so I'm really, really stoked that we get to share some space this morning. Excellent. Lovely. And I would like to return the honor by introducing my co-host, Magda Mulatu. Um, Magda is a writer, a podcaster who is living on Treaty 6 territory, which is in Amaskwachi, uh, Waskaikikan, uh, or Edmonton. Uh, her poetry has appeared in places like Glass Buffalo, Contemporary Verse 2, and Filling Station, all fantastic um, uh, publications. And she has a flash story, Half-Life, that was shortlisted for Room's 2021 Short Forms Contest. Congratulations. Thank you. She is the media and events manager when she is uh, trying to make money uh, <laughs> of Edmonton's Glass Bookshop, where she produces and co-hosts the podcast Glass Bookshop Radio. Uh, and it is my pleasure to uh, introduce and to share the Zoom space with her today. Um, excellent. So I look forward to the conversation that we're going to have today, um, Magda. And um, uh, although you say we're going to spend a lot of time on the response of weeds, I mean, we're going to spend a lot of time on uh, a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> and they're going to involve your writings as well. Um, because uh, as I've already pointed out to you in the green room, you know, I've read some things and I think that there's a lot of interesting things that we could uh, talk about, not just this one book of uh, poetry. Of so, yes. So why don't I kick things off by talking a little bit about the um, dilemma that many of us find ourselves in, uh, writers of color, uh, and particularly, I think, Black writers as well. Um, and in my experience, it, there's always been this struggle uh, around what kind of writer are you exactly? Uh, I remember having um, creative writing classes with um, profs. <laughs> yes, I see your, the knowing smile has already come <laughs> to your face. Yeah. So uh, those of you who are not familiar with uh, being a racialized creative writing student, you're not going to fully, um, though you will appreciate this, but you're not going to be able to fully anticipate this. But at some point, 
we are made to either claim our blackness um, or we are made to account for it somehow um, rather than simply being seen as or deemed as writers. And I remember one uh, creative write prof, writing prof said to me, uh, you know, uh, I really love your writing and it seems to me it's very clear that you can write, but I don't see anything of the black experience in your writing. Maybe you want to think about that. Yeah. And I will tell you, this was a white professor. And I'll also point out that uh, over the summer before I took that course, I'd been thinking very deeply about what it meant for me to be a black writer. And I had sketched out a particular approach that I thought would be innovative, but also deeply engaging in my black experience. And the result of that approach was this very story that this uh, white professor looked at uh, and told me after I had spent a lot of thought engaging my blackness and expressing it through this story, who then told me he didn't see the black experience in my writing. <laughs> so what I wanna throw out there for us to discuss is what is this thing called being a writer versus a black writer? And how have you, if you have explicitly had to, or um, how have you engaged or navigated this particularly tricky terrain that, you know, white writers just don't have to navigate? Hmm. No beating around yeah. the bush, huh? We're getting right <laughs> into it. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'll start by saying I, I empathize with, with that story and with that experience. Um, yeah. I only took a couple of uh, creative writing classes uh, during my time at the University of Alberta, and most of them were were pretty positive all around. Um, yeah. But I, I can definitely relate to, um, yeah, being being called out in that particular way. Um, yeah, that that question, or I guess that tension, is something that I've been grappling with since I started writing poetry. Um, I. I don't know that it's one that I'll ever be able to resolve, quite frankly. Um, but I remember, you know, taking these intro poetry classes and the kind of writing that I was doing at that time was, I guess I would say it was trying to be explicitly black. And I use yes. very big air quotes. <laughs> there. <laughs> Those are black quotes, by the way, you just did. Yeah, yeah. they're big and loud. <laughs> Slightly threatening too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that was because at the time, you know, trying to to parse out what it it meant to be black in Alberta was always very difficult for me. I, it right. was something that I I recognize on a kind of factual level in that I could look in the mirror and recognize, hey, that's a black woman. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. But kind of examining the nuances of that and um, exploring what that meant to me personally, that was something that I had struggled with my whole life. And so when I got into university and I started writing um, creatively in a more kind of dedicated and intentional way, um, those two journeys were kind of um, intervening or intersecting, uh, you know, kind of colliding into one another. Um, so as a result, the poetry that I was trying to write was very much interested in um, what it meant to be black from, I guess, what I didn't realize at the time was kind of a, a white gaze, a white lens. Um, and my 
frame of references or my frame of reference rather for um, black writing and black poetry has for a long time and was only just now beginning to change, but was for a long time American. Um, So I was looking at black writers who I love and whose work still inspires me to this day. Um, But I was dealing with what it meant to be black from a uniquely American context. And so um, there are particular histories and experiences that, you know, were distinct from what I was going through um, as a, as a black woman in Alberta. Um, But that's kind of all that I was drawing from at that time. So I was writing poetry about like histories of anti-blackness and slavery and um, police brutality and all these things that I had kind of observed um, from, from an outsider's perspective. Um, And of course had left marks on me, but um, I didn't feel connected to in, in, in the same way. I didn't feel like I could stake a claim to that in the same way. Um, and it was something that I really went back and forth on. And I remember I put together a portfolio in one of my classes towards the end of the semester where I was asking these exact questions, like what, how can I call myself, um, a black writer? If there's this disconnect, how can I, um, actually extend the things that I'm writing about beyond, um, suffering and beyond pain um because as i would come to learn and as i knew but didn't quite have the words to express um the black experience is defined by by so much more than that Um, and that's across borders and and everything else um i remember going to an event around the same time um where i met nisha patel in person um and that's a wonderful person lover yeah just the best just the best (laughs) absolutely yeah yeah. Um, and I, I had known her work and um, loved it, but I, I didn't know her at that time. So I was very lucky to run into her there. And we got into this conversation about writing. And I, I brought this up, how I was kind of struggling in my classes um, with this impulse to, yeah, write what I, what I called explicitly Black poems, um, or just write about literally anything else. <laughs> and um, something that Nisha told me that I have never forgotten um, is that you can write about whatever you want. You can write a poem about an orange and it would still be a black poem because you wrote it. You could write a poem about your car and it would still be a black poem because you wrote it. And same thing with all the other monikers, you know, whether it's like a feminist poem um, or a black feminist poem or whatever else you wanna, you know, add there. All of those things are what they are because you are the person writing it. yeah, and that was such a, a liberating thing for me. Um, not that it, you know, undid <laughs> all of the <laughs> all of the doubt and, and all of the worry and all that kind of stuff, but um, it it definitely did just free up some space for me creatively um, and emotionally to kind of just not worry so much about how I'm categorizing myself and my writing, um, and just make good work and work that. Um, I can be proud of. Slow clap. Fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, on the nose, hundred uh, percent. And uh, by the way, um, Marta, I think that many people listening to this who might be black writers or aspiring black writers or writers of color, they're going to feel very, very heartened by what you just said, uh, because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't realize that you can just write. And that blackness is not something that has to inherently come from inside of you so that other people recognize it 
in this very recognizable way that we've learned through TV and pop culture and things like that. But that you simply need to be you and the rest will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that you actually addressed this right at the very beginning of your response to this when you said that, you know, you don't really know how to resolve that question. It's been a question that you've been dealing with all your life, essentially, your writing life. It's a deep question. And um, I think that that is an accurate way of uh, contextualizing it, because the truth is, when we are made to feel that we have to confront this feeling, it's because of something exterior to us. It's the, it is, again, that being placed in a particular box beyond our control, essentially. And mm-hmm. I think the most valuable lesson that you just helped to express is that it's not for someone else to tell you who you are, right? It's not. Yeah. It is for you to explore yourself through your writing or through whatever it is. And that is your most authentic self right there. So wonderful, wonderful answer. Thank you, Magda. Thank you, Nisha. <laughs> wow. All right. She's not even here and she's providing wisdom. Excellent. I know. <laughs> yeah. Phenomenal. So um, that is a question that I have struggled with all my life. And um, of course, when I uh, wrote the response of weeds, it was actually at the top of mind for me there. Mm. Both the question of how explicit do I make the blackness in my poems, as well as, well, what is my particular blackness? Since, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, from uh, Harlem, right? I, I don't have... Um, the same kind of direct access or inheritance to African-American history. Uh, I have um, uh, American family and um, I see how they are African-American, you know, in ways that I am not because I'm Canadian. Yeah. And so those two things were always at top of mind for me. And I think that um, the response of simply writing from yourself, simply writing how you are, who you are, is enough. And I eventually got there in writing the poems of the Responsive Weeds. Mm. But I do also want to say that multiplicity forms and can form a legitimate part of our writing identities, uh, particularly those of us who are racialized or Black. Uh, And so, yeah, sometimes we can access that African-American history in legitimate ways. After all, much of what happened in the United States also happened in Canada, but Canadians just don't like to look at it or they've erased it or whitewashed it or whatever. Uh, On top of that, the histories of the two nations are literally connected to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, There was slavery in Canada, there was slavery in the United States. We happened to abolish it slightly sooner. And so there was uh, uh, underground railroad and things like that into Canada, but there were many relationships Uh, established between the nations that essentially blurred the borders. And so our histories are actually also shared and our black histories are also shared as well. So at times we can legitimately access that. But at other Mm -hmm. times we have our own things that we can uh, address. And some of that has to do with a kind of, I almost want to say militancy. And this is just my word for it. Um, Maybe it's more accurate to call it a sort of critique and in part, this is also what I wanted to do in the response of weeds. So we are here too. We have been here for centuries. There is a history of us here, mm-hmm. but quote unquote, you guys just don't know about it, right? And so uh, in part, the role that we can play in our writing is to assert presence as, as yes. you pointed out as well, 
Yeah. And simply in doing that, and here's where I'm going to tie it all back to what you just talked about. I'm hooked. I'm waiting. (laughs) (laughs) Simply in writing, as Nisha said, we are asserting our presence. And in that sense, it doesn't matter how we assert our blackness or what that blackness is. That blackness is our blackness simply because we are writing. Writing is an arena that has historically and traditionally been denied to blackness. When people think about Black people, they think about athletes and the funny people and criminals and things like that. They don't think about writers and intellects and things like that. So the very act of writing imposes or critiques that uh, view of us, that limiting view of us. And therefore, simply to write is to assert our presence. And that's why I think that what uh, Nisha and what you have just said is extremely valuable. We don't have to be worrying about our Blackness. We just write, right? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I truly couldn't have put it any better. And I think- Well, I see we're going to have to rename this podcast to um, (laughs) Preaching to the Choir or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) The the club of slapping each other on the back. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's also one of those things where- all of that reminds me that, you know, I think it's it's important not to take myself too seriously, but it is crucial that I take the work seriously. Very um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Because, awesome. you know, I, I don't necessarily prescribe to the idea of kind of making art for art's sake, although that sounds great in theory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, there's there's a purpose that that has to be um, addressed and and has to be answered to. Um, And all of that is, is always on my mind, you know, without putting too much pressure on myself, without putting too much pressure on other black folks, on other folks that exist at multiple different intersecting identities, you know? Um, But it is, I think, something that connects us all to each other um, and also creates a kind of forward momentum with the work that is is so crucial like an energy you know that that can't quite be described or characterized in a, in a tangible way right right listen since you just brought up art for art's sake mm. this reminds me of and the importance of your work this reminds me of a poem of yours that i came across Ooh. yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it is actually what inspired me to think about this topic about you know what kind of writers are we exactly can we just be writers or are we black writers or what are we exactly? Mm-hmm. Um, and I came across this poem called Shahrazad. Mm. And uh, I really enjoyed this poem. I really enjoyed it very much. Um, and of course, most of us are familiar with this uh, figure Shahrazad from the uh, Thousand and One Nights. Uh, she is the character who actually stymies the king who's been killing all these women um, uh, because he can't trust them, <laughs> essentially. Uh, And so he sleeps with one and then kills her and then marries another one and he kills them every night. Right. What a guy. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) my goodness. Yeah. So uh, Shahrazad decides that she is going to take this guy on. And if I remember correctly, her sister was going to be the next one. Yeah. Okay. It's been a very long time since I've read it, but your poem reminded me of this. Yeah. So her sister uh, was going to be the next one. And she says, nope, you're not going to do it. I'm going to do it. Yes. And uh, she saves her sister and she saves all the women of her community. 
by telling stories to the king, uh, stories that she leaves as cliffhangers every night that he is desperate to hear how the story resolves. And so she strings him along, I'm boring your metaphor there, she strings him <laughs> along night after night for a thousand and one nights yes. until eventually, you know, they are, they're married, obviously they have kids, they've been living together for a long time. He comes to his senses and realizes the wickedness of his ways. Yeah, and so he stops everything there. So you wrote this wonderful poem that I wanted to quote from, but I can't, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and I just encourage everyone to go out there and uh, search it, Shaharazad. Um, and in it, you have one line that I'm going to try to remember, but it's something along the lines of you're chastising or you are criticizing the king um, for trying to claim the story for himself. And mm -hmm. the line is something along the, the uh, lines of, um, uh, it's something like, uh, if you told this story, it would be about romance or something like that. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> this is not your story to tell, or this is not your voice to speak with. I forget exactly what it is. But I loved that idea of, no, you got it wrong, because it's not your story. It's not your story. Hmm. And I wanted to ask you, because in this poem, this would be a prime candidate for my creative writing teacher to say, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's really good, but, you know, I'm just not seeing. Yeah. Okay. So prime right. candidate for it. No, I <laughs> loved it. And I got lots out of it. Yeah. Why don't you tell me or tell my uh, creative writing teacher, mm. um, what is the value of speaking with one's own voice? Or what is the necessity of a story being told by the quote unquote right voice for you? Whew. And you can tell, you can answer that through your poem if you'd like to. And yeah, I can entice yeah. people to go and read it. <laughs> mm. I didn't know which poem you were going to reference. So <laughs> that, that was a surprising one. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> I got to pull it up now and see yes, yeah. what the exact quote is. Yeah. Oh, what a, what a great question. I don't, I think I would say for me, writing from what I would call my own voice was not something that came naturally at yeah. first. Like it was a thing that had to be found in part because you know, I started writing young and as you get older, you learn more about yourself, you're growing and changing all the time, et cetera, et cetera. But also because when I first started writing, I was both consciously and subconsciously kind of mimicking other writers that I was reading and, and kind of saw around me for better or for worse, you know? Um, and so it took me a long time to be able to divorce what was theirs from what was mine. Um, not to say that there aren't things that are borrowed or that that line is this very, you know, crystal clear <laughs> definitive thing. Um, but it took some time for me to be able to kind of parse through all of that. Um, it strikes me as a natural process, by the way. I mean, I think we all go through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and I think that's also the benefit of a writing just generally writing as, as often and as much as possible um, and also reading as often as much as possible, you know, right. and as widely as possible. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, that's kind of, it started from a very uncertain place. Um, 
but then kind of just thinking about my life outside of writing uh, and the kinds of experiences I was having out in in the world, um, there were so few opportunities for me to exercise my voice in, in meaningful ways. Um, and, you know, on, on any given day, that can be due to a number of things, um, more likely a combination of things, right? Um, I'm young, I'm a woman, I'm Black, all of those things kind of contribute to um, a silencing of source of sorts or um, being made invisible in, in certain ways. Um, and I don't think I really realized the extent to which that was happening until I got older and was able to kind of um, name it as such. Um, so for me, uh, this is, I guess, an answer that many people in this position would give or similar positions, but, um, you know, part of it is a reclamation of something that I didn't know that I had lost. Um, and then also once, once I started, there was no way to go back. Like once I knew that this voice was in me, I couldn't unknow. Right. (laughs) And so the, the next question became, okay, what do I do with this? Right. figuring that out um but again it it goes back to that idea of of purpose right of of having that energy of having that forward momentum um because of the fact that my presence signals something else or can can signal something else in in these spaces um so yeah i think it's evolving it's the voice is evolving i'm evolving as is the case with virtually every other writer you know um but yeah i think um where did you think you were in terms of your evolving voice when you wrote that poem, Shaharazad? How did that feel to you? Good question. I think I, I'm really interested in, in, I wouldn't call this a myth necessarily, but um, you know, myths, legends, folktales, yeah. stories of along the same lines. Um, and particularly the way that women are represented in those, in those stories. Um, and in this case, uh, you know, this story, depending on how it's told and who's telling it is often um, kind of recited in a, through an Orientalist view. Um, right. And so there was a lot of layers to sort of peel back from that. Um, so I was challenging myself, one, to write about something that uh, was not directly related to Blackness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also could be tied to it um, in ways big and small, seen and unseen. Um, And I think one of the the difficult things for me about writing through or around or within myth and legend is not just like retelling the story, (laughs) just like recounting the same details over and over and over again. Because, you know, if people wanted that, they would go read the original original (laughs) work. (laughs) That's not what I'm I'm here to do. Um, So yeah, it was a piece that I actually really hesitated like sending out to, to folks because I didn't know if I had accomplished that to the extent that I, I wanted to. Um, but yeah, that was kind of kind of the impetus. I wanted to challenge myself to work within those kind of constraints um, and also see if there was something, something more that I could say, something further that I could push um, within that narrative. Um, so yeah, I think it was a tricky one. It was a tricky one. It, it, that's why I kind of caught me off guard that you brought that one up. Yeah, <laughs> well, I it, think that you did manage to say something different. I think you did. I think you pushed forward this whole idea of um, female power, of uh, feminism as well, 
mm-hmm. uh, and you gave it a new spin, I think. And that was allowed through the tradition of the literature that um, the, the Thousand and One narrative, uh, sorry, Thousand and One Arabian Nights come from, Thousand and One mm-hmm. Nights come from, but also uh, through your own multiple positions as you described, your own intersectional positions and uh, experiences, personal things you were going through yourself. Uh, and those things also just help to amplify the newness of that poem, uh, sort of that tradition rather, I mean. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, I really, I loved it. And uh, as I said, great candidate for my creative writing prof. But what does <laughs> he know, right? <laughs> and I really, it sounds terrible uh, about him. I didn't even hate him. I loved him actually. He was very good. Yeah. Just he didn't really know anything in this particular area. That's right. that's all there was. Right. All right. So, you know, if you don't mind, I would love for the folks to get in more of a sense of your poetic voice. Mm-hmm. So would you just mind reading a few poems for the folks now and then they can see for themselves what this voice can do? Sure, sure. I'd be honored. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I didn't plan on reading that one, but I think I will since we've been talking about it. Um, yeah, so that poem, um, for folks that are, are curious, um, is available to read for free online. Um, it was one of two poems that I had published in volume two of um, the Edmonton Public Library's Capital City Press anthology. Uh, the two poems are not related to each other. <laughs> the other one has nothing to do with Shahara's head, um, but they both exist in that space. Um, so yeah. This is Scheherazade's oath. It only took 27 days for the skin of your hands to forget the imprint of each strike. Poison, that violence. I will sit slick in my sister's wet terror, unspool it over a thousand nights, time never antidote enough. My tongue is a thread longing to be pulled. No hands are as deft as my own, so... Turn around, heed this flare. All roads lead back to the story. Selective memory finds no safety here. Though the women were yours, if only for their bared throats, the sacrifice. The story belongs to us and us alone. When you tell it later, the court confidants at your side, gagging on the syrup of it, you'll say ours was a love match a destined thing that you charted on the journey from first dawn to final dusk. If only you knew all the things to come spilling out of me yet. My husband, a king by blood, but a fool by nature. What do you know of the shape of a heart? You, a man that calls love by loss's name, that only keeps covenant with the moon. This union is a beast with edged teeth, a means to an end. And end it did. Yeah. Thanks. Right. thanks. 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 Loved it. Loved it. <laughs> okay. The line was the story belongs to us and us alone. That mm-hmm. was that was the line. Yes. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well done. You got to keep going. Give us another one, please. please. Another one? Yes, please. Okay, I'll read one more and then I'm gonna right. start talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I think maybe I'll read kind of thinking more along the lines about um, voicelessness and um, trying to establish presence um, when all that has been expected of you or I guess allowed for you is absence. Um, I'm going to read a poem called In the Dream. Um, 
I wrote the first draft of this piece during a writing workshop that was hosted by Warsan Shire, um, who's a writer that I've admired for many, many years. Uh, and this workshop was one that she held in advance of the release of her debut collection, um, which is called Bless the Daughter Raised by the Voice in Her Head. Um, and I highly recommend it. It's great. Um, so yeah, this is In the Dream. In the dream, I open my mouth and only locusts emerge. I try my tongue, massage the pulse at my throat, tender like a bruise. How am I meant to make a life, to reach for what I cannot name? I am still searching for the right prayers, chasing the many angels, the numbered saints. See, I want the kind of dangerous living I can manage, risk I can pinch between fingers or chew with back teeth. I want the nectar promised by all those who guzzle it in excess. I want to be more than the desert flower, transforming the cellular for survival. I want to cease sealing eyes shut with honey, let down the curtain on the performance of it all. Black girl, it is your birthright to be honest and bury it, to leave it to waste in the desert with everything else that would not adapt. Where does the voice go when it is silenced? Does it carry water still? Become a river that exercises restraint, premeditates this drought. In the dream, I open my mouth, and even here, I am mute. Wow, very poignant. Wow, very. <laughs> In the dream, Makamuratu, wow. Well done, well done. Thank that's, you. Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. You know, uh, folks, I, I'm sorry if uh, I've been um, just gushing so much over this poet, but, you know, they told me this was going to be an emerging poet that I'm dealing with here, and... If this it is very emerging, much is. yeah, <laughs> this is very scary. Like, <laughs> honestly, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, uh, all I can do is just encourage everyone to watch out for you because clearly stuff is coming. And if there's time for us later on, we will talk a little bit about creating a collection uh, from individual poems. But uh, I look forward to uh, your collection uh, when it comes out because uh, you clearly have a thoughtful, mature voice that is going somewhere clearly so yeah thank you for that lovely that's so lovely. kind so generous thank you so much oh no problem at all <laughs> I just say it how I see it <laughs> that's it <laughs> thank you thank you no no that that really does mean a lot um especially considering just how much I I loved and resonated with the response of weeds um I honestly don't even know where to start it's such a rich rich text um, there are so many places that we could go, um, but I suppose I want to start um, maybe with the, the time in which this book came out into the world. Now, you know, no author can really control <laughs> when their books are, are released, but yours was released in April 2020. Um, which was kind of the last quiet moment in yes. what would be a very eventful year in terms of the conversations that we were having around racial justice um, and anti-Black racism uh, and so many other things. I am so curious, like given the fact that we've talked a little bit about how, um, you know, oftentimes our, our frame of reference as Canadians for what we call the Black experience is actually very much American. Um, 
I'm really curious as to how you felt about this book coming out at that time um, when, again, the news was, for the most part, coming out of America, reverberating back into Canada in ways that were both, um, I'll say, productive and potentially promising and also ways that were not so much either of those things. Um, and I'm, I'm curious as to whether you see this book or whether other people perhaps that's maybe the better question to ask have come to you in in the months and now years since um saying that they saw this book or see this book still as a kind of educational resource and perhaps um how releasing this book at another time might have potentially changed the characterization around that yeah, all excellent questions um, in there. So I'll begin with the, the timing of the release of the book. Um, of course, as you just finished saying, we can't choose the circumstances in which our uh, books will be released. They're just released when they're released and circumstances take over from there. So um, I will tell you something that I only shared with one other person. And I don't mm. know why I'm choosing this moment to bring it out, but anyway. <laughs> When my book, and I'm a little embarrassed admitting this, but um, when my book was first released, you know, normally the release of a book should fill you with pride and joy and anticipation and that sort of thing. And certainly I did have those feelings. I did. But my strongest feeling was actually one of shame. Mm. And um, it took me a really long time to figure out why that was or what was going on. And in fact, it was Cheryl Fogo who um, uh, helped me through that. Cheryl Fogo, fantastic. The, the uh, historical keeper of Black history of, of Alberta, uh, amazing author, playwright, filmmaker. I could go on and on and on. Um, and she helped to put it in perspective uh, for me in that uh, she said, you know, for so long we have been taught that we don't have a place, right? We accept that, even when we don't want to. It becomes a part of our thinking of who we are. And my book was asserting a place, and it was asserting it within a landscape and a tradition of understanding what it meant to be Canadian, Western Canadian, Albertan, um, uh, asserting it against that landscape in a way that challenged it uh, very strongly. Mm. And I think I was unconsciously feeling the burden of my upbringing. I believe, where I'm not supposed to stand out. I'm not supposed to say bad things. I, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but when I was young, I was always in trouble at school. That was my role. I was always at the at principal's office and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And now looking back, I see, you know, I really wasn't a bad kid. I really wasn't, right? Yeah, yeah but um, there are certain scripts that get written for you. And I think the script of shame is also one that was written for me. So it took me a long time to work my way through it, but that's what I felt. And so then when June rolls around and everyone is, um, you know, um, confessing that they can do better and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, saying we've got to change things now. And yes, Canada's just as bad as the U.S. And, you know, all these things that we have known our entire lives, but suddenly have now become novel. Because, yes, there was a tragedy in the United States that people could not ignore anymore. Um, But in our own Canadian way, we embraced it up here. And during that time, 
I did feel much more visible than I have before. Mm. Not in a good way, I will say. I, I wouldn't even say in a bad way, but um, this is something I'm sure you can relate to. You know, blackness in Canada is either invisible or hyper-visible, right? Yeah. Yep. You can't just be a human. You can't just be a person who feels love or boredom or, you know, has plans for retirement or anything like that. You just can't have that, right? It's one or the other. And so during that period, June 2020 into the summer of 2020, I felt hyper-visible. And I remember once I was walking my dog through the dog park. And I will tell you, the dog park is a weird space for me anyway. Um, I get weird looks all the time in the dog mm. park, right? Startled, weird, just weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so this was just one more opportunity for me to, well, not an opportunity. This just heightened it. This made it, it took it to the, the nth degree, essentially. Yeah. And I remember walking through the park at one point and thinking to myself, wow, you know, I love city environments because... I can feel anonymous in city environments. Yeah. And I actually spent some of my childhood in a small town. I actually graduated from Olds, Alberta, small town. And you can't feel anonymous as a racialized person in a small town. You are the black person in, in that town, right? You are the black student in the school. And um, that's obviously it comes with its trauma as well. And so for me, the city has always been a place where I can just escape into anonymity. Uh, but there I was in the park, out in nature, where I normally feel quite nice, quite good, uh, feeling hyper-visible, hyper-visible. And I didn't speak to anyone. I didn't look at anyone. I don't know that anyone was looking at me, but I know I was hyper-visible at that time. So it was a very... Um, um, I don't even think I have the word for it, to be honest. I'm, I'm struggling for the word. Mm. Uh, unique period for me. Now, at the same time, I was aware that I had just published this, this uh, book of poems. It had received an early review from Quill and Choir. It was a starred review, and so it was very good. And I felt, yeah, that's great, right? But I thought that was going to be the extent of it. You know, I thought Quill and Choir, starred review, and I was happy with that. Yeah. Good enough, right? But I think that I benefited from the moment, the 2020 moment. And I think because so many people were committed to doing better and learning more about the, the histories they've avoided and things like that, they were looking, I think. And I think that my book benefited from that. Now, as I told you, I was still working through shame. And so in part, that just fueled the shame as well. It just made me feel like, you know, more of an imposter and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, Nevertheless, I've now come to the position um, that because you cannot control the circumstances when your books are released, just like you cannot control the circumstances of the color of your skin, the parents you're born to, or the, the city or the country you were born in, and the language you inherit, all those things, I refuse to let that circumstance dictate my emotional experience of, of the book uh, and my view of what could be seen as its value. And so when people started to ask me to come and talk and to give poetry readings and things like that, I accepted all that and I chose not to think of it as just a response to the, the summer of 2020. Though I know that that was a part of their response as well. I know. I just chose to decide that, well, maybe this will just be a springboard and they'll carry on thinking about these things in the future. 
<laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> now, um, the last part of your question uh, had to do with the how the book would be viewed as like an educational resource, and maybe the um, the summer 2020 and um, uh, George Floyd, which I've been avoiding actually using his name, but let me just say, yeah, that's what it was. It was the George Floyd moment that we had, uh, might have contributed to. And here is one area where I actually do feel confident that it would not have mattered either way, uh, because I am an educator and I generally have a sort of educational or educating perspective. I love to learn. I am a researcher. I studied Black history for a long time because, as you well know, we're not taught any of it. Um, and so part of my goal was to make a text, a collection of poems that could edify both uh, artistically and uh, educationally. Uh, and I feel as though I did succeed in that. Now, my instinct was not always spot on in this matter. And so here I want to credit my editor because <laughs> I thought the poems themselves would just manage this. But my editor said, uh, you know, you're probably a better Black historian than every single person who's going to read your book. <laughs> so you might want to guide them through some of these things here. You know, maybe a list at the beginning, just indicating some, not like a list, but nobody needs that. Don't, don't read the poems, right? It's like, ah, just think about it, right? So I thought of it and I, I realized, no, he's exactly right. If I had to study these things to discover them, no one's going to know a lot of the things that I'm mentioning in here in terms of the history. Now, the lived experience of Blackness, I knew that many people would be able to connect with that and I wanted them to connect with that, which is why the dedication at the beginning is to all of those who've ever had to grapple with that question, where are you from? Okay, because mm -hmm. we've all had to grapple with that question. So I didn't think, I sorry, I did think that it was always going to be seen as an educational text and I'm happy that it has been seen that way. And I hope that it will have lasting value for that. Um, yeah, I could keep going, but let me just, I'll no. stop there because yeah, that's, <laughs> that's enough for, from your excellent question. Yeah, great question. Great Very question. scatterbrained question. Thank you for <laughs> collecting all the threads that I just <laughs> scattered amongst this conversation. Well, yeah. You know, thinking of, uh, thinking of scattering, I wonder if this is a good opportunity maybe to talk about bringing um, different poems together into a collection and that process. And I don't know how it went for you, but for me, my English degree came in handy here, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I can just say very simply, I had written about 200 poems. Um, and before I realized that, well, you know, you probably should put this in together into something. And so uh, in English Lit, you were taught how to read texts, how to find themes and to draw out significance. So that's what I did. I looked through all those poems and I asked myself, what do I see here? And I saw four very powerful themes emerging. Uh, themes having to do with my biography, having to do with the geography of the landscape, having to do with the history, and having to do with uh, Blackness. And so I just gathered those all together. And then the poems that were the most expressive of those, I grouped together. They all overlapped, of course. Yeah. Um, and I grouped them into sections that way. Uh, yeah. And that's essentially how I did the, 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 the book, the collection itself. So very straightforward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how about you? You're working on things right now. What's, what's, what does the process look like for you? Yeah. Um, that, it's so interesting. You make it sound so straightforward. 
because <laughs> I was I was really curious if and I will answer your question in a moment but I was really curious to see whether or not there were ever more than four sections or if you had ever um planned on uh kind of organizing the book beyond those four themes that you just mentioned or was it just kind of like that clear or that immediately apparent when you kind of looked at everything once I had parsed through everything and came up with my themes four was the the natural number and I landed on it and I stuck with it so there was never anything less or more at that point yeah Yeah. and by the way it was simple (laughs) (laughs) yeah a a small understatement there um yeah no it's just it, it, it just sounds simple comparatively because I think about yeah. you know I, I co-host and produce this podcast Glass Bookshop Radio um, right. for Glass Bookshop um, where I work and I talk to many poets um, on the pod and you know when I ask them about how they went about organizing their collections um, more often than not there was some debate over what how many <laughs> sections what they should be what they should be titled all that kind of stuff so yeah. Uh, and that is the correct answer I think it's a hodgepodge (laughs) honestly yeah 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 um yeah but as for myself I'm I'm not working on a full-length collection but I am um kind of in the the early stages of of writing and also revising now um a chapbook manuscript and I think I I need to kind of take it a little a little easier and and take the the Bertrand (laughs) approach (laughs) Because I feel like I've been uh, stressing myself out a little bit, trying to um, make it as as cohesive and complete a body of work as possible. So even right. though it's a chapbook, I'm treating it like it's a debut collection <laughs> <laughs> and really like racking my brain, trying to be like, oh, what are the the narrative through lines or the thematic threads that, that bring this all together? Um, <laughs> when really, I don't think it needs to be all that serious. And, you know, it could just be a collection of things that I'm really proud of and have worked on so far. And, exactly. and that could be enough. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. Don't put pressure yeah. on yourself, honestly. Yeah. I think every poet does it differently. Every poetry collection will come out differently as well. Right. Yeah. So you do it however it happens with you. And by the way, although I did have my four hard sections with these uh, poems, as I mentioned, I had written about 200 poems and mm-hmm. only, I don't know, maybe 50 made it into this collection. So the next collection that's coming out comes from that same period of time. It's the leftovers, Mm. basically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I had a much harder time trying to figure out how to group and to put these together. And ultimately, Mm. I really only have two sections and neither of them are sections, to be honest. It's just a bunch of poems. (laughs) That's okay. Maybe you're you're about to create this like new experimental organizing principle, you know, and then that'll be the new trend. <laughs> um, I'm so curious as to how, you know, a poem is the right fit. Like what, what is the criteria? What is the, it, the it factor for you that a poem needs to have um, for it to be, I'll say for this particular collection, for, for that poem to have appeared in the responsive lead, other than, right. you know, falling under those thematic categories. Right. Um, yeah. What was the, the kind of, I guess, magic that you were looking for in terms of what yeah. to include? And magic is a really good word because I don't know that I can answer that specifically. Mm. So besides the process I mentioned to you just now, and maybe I went through this process because it is a little bit magic for me. So the actual writing of a poem. So I think there's, there are two questions here for me to address. And um, 
the first stage is how do I know that this is a poem, that this is a, a workable, working, succinct um, poem, right? Um, because most of what I write isn't. You know, there's a lot of writing that takes place. And right now I'm working on my third collection and I can tell you, I would say it's probably one in 10 poems that to me feels like, oh yeah, this one works, this is it. But nine of them, eh, oh no. <laughs> and there are even a couple in the nine that are close, but oh, if I put that in there, no, I, I couldn't do it, yeah. Mm. So that part is magic for me. And I don't know if I can explain that. It's largely a feeling, largely. Mm -hmm. Also, I guess I will go back to that English degree. So, you know, you poets out there who have English degrees, and most of us do, because what the heck, right? <laughs> <laughs> because no job. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, that, the degree helps in that regard, because I do have a kind of critical eye that I can um, uh, apply to my own work. And the, the process that I usually go through, so the, the life cycle of the poem, usually is I write the poem, emotionally, this is the best thing that's ever been written. Oh my goodness, Shakespeare is nothing. They're gonna forget Shakespeare when they read this. I can't believe it's taken me so long to come up with such genius. Wow, <laughs> I'm gonna put this out tomorrow, right? <laughs> the next day I look at it and I notice, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> there is that. That's not quite so good. Okay, ooh, and ah, there's that, ooh, and ooh. And you know, by the end of the day, I realized that it's like the worst thing I've ever written, right? Mm. Not even close to the best. Okay, and so then it's just start again. And I go on to the next poem, or I keep reworking this one. But sometimes it's not even worth reworking poems, um, for me anyway. Now, that comes down to the type of poetry. Okay, so I was writing and have been writing up until now, these kind of short lyrics is what I was writing, these lyrical poems, okay? And those have to kind of speak like a song almost. They have to be, they have to strike an emotional chord. Look at me and all the music uh, metaphors. Mm -hmm. music. <laughs> they, they have to strike a particular chord and it has to be impactful in the moment, yeah. And so it's pretty straightforward to feel if it works or not right away. And if you're trying too hard with that sort of thing, it's like writing a bad pop song, right? It just, you can, you hear all of the, the bad cliches going through it and, you know, and that's just a little bit too much Drake and a little bit not enough, I don't know, <laughs> Chuck D, whatever, right? Okay. <laughs> I mean, you, you feel it all, but neither of them should be as visible, right? It mm -hmm. should be you. It should be you. So um, I can feel it right away. And Normally, I don't really rework my poems too much unless it feels close. If it feels close, then I will rework it and rework it. And after a while, either I'll feel that satisfaction, like, yeah, that does it for sure. Mm -hmm. Or I'll just quit and move on to another poem. So I guess part of the magic is in how does a lyric land? How does the language land? Um, for me, first of all, obviously, and then for a potential audience. And I, you know, I don't even want to try to give a formula for it because I do feel that some of it has to be instinctive and it, some of it has to be magic, I think. If there were a formula, everyone would be doing it um, and everyone is not doing it because it's hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's that yeah. first part, how to make the poem work. And then the second part is the process that I mentioned to you. Once you've got workable poems, 
Now it's a matter of using that English degree, kicking it into gear, right? <laughs> Finding themes, pulling them out, seeing what you see there. And now not really trying to make things really forced into play, but just seeing what's there. And then maybe drawing a little bit of that out a little bit more. So you might be interested to know that there are a couple of poems that I wrote after the fact, after I saw the themes and had my poems uh, all laid out. There are two or three, I think like the last poem, for example, that I think was the very last poem that I wrote for that collection, as I just wanted a way to sort of cap things off and a couple of poems here and there throughout. Yeah, but largely once it was there, it was there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so basically the main takeaway is trust your gut. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's it, exactly. Yeah. And that's a great takeaway for this entire talk we've had, right? Yeah. Trust yeah. your gut and go with it. Exactly. Yeah. You can Absolutely. always revise. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that intuition, it's there and it's telling you something. It's up to you to listen. That's for sure. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I think you gave the best advice earlier on already, right? If you want to write, then you have to write. So write a lot, write many different genres if you can, write as widely as you can, as often as you can, and read a lot. Read as widely as you can, as many different genres, and apply both of those things as rigorously um, and as, uh, in as a disciplined manner as you can, and that gets you there. So if mm. you do all of that, you can trust your gut. You can at that point. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. Um, we're coming kind of to the close of our conversation here, but I, I do have one more question and then I'm going to invite you to read. No problem. Um, I like that you, you kind of brought up all these music metaphors because I was thinking a lot about music and musicality as I was uh, rereading your book in anticipation of our conversation today. Um, I really, really admire um, writers like yourself who as articulated in your last response and also just as I, can tell from reading your work um, are devoted to language like at the level of the letter like everything is so intentional and precise um, and I can really hear that and feel that as I read um, because of the musicality of of the work um, there's a lot of call and response which I love both in individual poems themselves and then also across different sections of the collection which is great um, and kind of calling back to, you know, this Black musical tradition that exists in so many different places and, and times um, throughout history. Um, but then there's also like a lot of great internal rhymes and things that kind of, yeah, just call back and forth to one another, like even within a line or a stanza. Um, and yeah, I just, I'm, I'm not a writer who I, at this point in my writing career, <laughs> works that way. Um, so much of it is what you're talking about feeling for me, as opposed to sound right. or working, looking at language at a technical level. Um, so I'm really curious, like, as to how you connect to this idea of musicality um, and how that, you know, played a part in, in you crafting this book. Yeah, I uh, love that question. Music plays a huge role in my life in general. I love music. Uh, I listen to it all the time. I um, never formally was trained in music, but I taught myself guitar when I was younger. I don't play it anymore. I'm crap. Uh, <laughs> I taught myself piano. I've got two pianos in this room. I love uh, playing them. Nice. Um, again, I'm crap, but, uh, but I love it. It's, it's through the, uh, the love of it. My uh, son is a musician. He's a drummer. 
my sister is a musician. She was trained as an opera singer and now she does other things as wow. well. Uh, she lives in Toronto. Uh, look her up, folks. Nima Bickerstaff. She's, she's there working on stuff. Shout out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so music is super important to me. And, you know, I have um, um, an African background, as you do. And by that, I mean my parents were African immigrants here and they brought their West African culture with them. And part of that, I know it's a cliche, but part of it was music, singing, mm -hmm. dancing. And uh, I know that this is different from my white friends when I was growing up, because when their family had parties, um, <laughs> music was optional at the parties. Yeah. <laughs> there was always a food for sure, but it was at the table and everyone sat down and ate at the same time. <laughs> Whereas my parents, when they had parties, music was happening and people are always dancing all the time. And so yes. I just grew up with that. And so that was, it forms an intrinsic part of who I am. Um, I also wanted to draw connections to the Black diaspora here in Alberta uh, and the ways in which uh, history or Black history have been overlooked. Looked, but as I pointed out to you before, share connections with American Black history. So Canadian and American Black history overlap. And one key uh, area that I do see this in is through music. I see it. there's a lot of dialogue that goes on simply because Americans are so influential, obviously. But Canadians take on that influence and in all areas, not just music, in all areas. Mm -hmm. And we, we um, interpret it and then reperform it in our own Canadian way. Right. Sometimes it's our own Canadian way. Right? <laughs> but other times it's not. It's other yeah. stuff, too. Right. I mean, we've got great stuff going on here as well. Yeah. So um, I really don't mean to make fun of white people so much in this <laughs> podcast. I really don't. Honestly, I like white people. I love white people. I'm married to a white person. Um, some of my best friends are white. I don't mean that at all. It just It'll happens okay. to be the context and <laughs> how we're discussing this, these things. Yeah. But uh, I just made fun of that Canadianism just now because when I lived in the U.S., people used to, young people used to call Can uh, Canada America light, right? That's mm. a, <laughs> how they thought of it. So there absolutely is that version of it. But the overlap of our histories, of our nations, and of our Black discourses was, in my opinion, very um, provocatively or evocatively expressed or accessed through music. And so I really wanted to engage that directly for all the reasons that I gave to you there. And you have even described, you know, one of the most important ones for me to in, uh, engage that call and response. Um, because it's not enough for them to draw this box around us and say, this is who we are. It is now for us to respond, right? And yes, sometimes we, we have to deal with the box, right? And that's, we can't avoid that, but we can respond to it, right? And so much of the poem, poetry, I wanted to have it infused with that sense of responding back to something, responding mm -hmm. constantly. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I could go on and on about that, but uh, I love that question about music and I'm so glad you asked me about it. Super important to me and I tried to infuse it wherever I could in the texts. Yeah. 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 You know what, I'll just quickly answer one other element to the question that you asked because I Please think do. this can help other people so that they don't feel overwhelmed by certain things. Uh, and that is, you know, the attention to language and the, the, the detailed focus on the sounds even of language. 
And yes, I admit that I have that. And uh, that was a part of the writing of the work. But um, here I want to emphasize that that is hard work. That is the hard work of poetry there. And although I joked earlier about, yeah, it was simple putting those four sections together. <laughs> wasn't actually that simple. Uh, yeah. Um, but it was made easier because I probably wrote these poems over the course of about 10 years, roughly. And in doing that, I had the time to incubate and to marinate and to really think through a lot of the things that I was doing. So that was part of the hard work. And I wanted to do it because I know that there are people who don't really see us as capable of engaging in that kind of high level poetics. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to make sure that I was demonstrating an ability for that, but I also wanted to twist it and to turn it towards our perspectives and our experiences so that people could recognize, yes, he can do that, but also he is showing us a different Alberta that is here and that has always been here as well. Mm -hmm. That's good. You know, it's good to have a little spite might not be the correct word, but sometimes <laughs> that, that, that little Bubble extra spice. juice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It can be motivating for sure. Most certainly. Definitely. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And I, yeah. I was just going to say, like, I really resonate with what you're talking about in terms of having this be a response to so many individuals, systems, institutions, um, historical narratives, et cetera. Yeah. And I mean, it's right there in the title, but I, I would never call this book, at least I would say the first word that I would reach for is, is never reactionary for right. what the response of Weeds tries to accomplish. And that's so often, I think what um, stereotypically black poetry again, Black yeah. poetry, um, yeah. is, is characterized by as, as being um, reacting to the things that are that are happening to us. Um, but even though this is concerned with response, um, it's about so much more than just having an answer to a question or having something to say to, some, to someone or something um, that poses difficulty um, for us in terms of the ways that we try to pursue a, a, a joyous and in full life. Um, so yeah, I'm, I I'm so, hope so. Yes. I yeah. Hope so. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, so grateful for all of those responses. Um, we've kind of come to, to the end here, but before we, we peace out, um, I'd <laughs> love to, uh, yeah, hear a couple of poems, um, from, from the collection. Uh, all right. So I, um, hadn't really planned this out very well. So the original <laughs> poem I was going to read was very long. So I'm going to going to change that, my okay. long poem. I'm going to change it to a shorter one. I'll just read you two short ones here. Um, the first one is called The Blind Man uh, on page 78, if you're following along. <laughs> and um, it falls under the uh, category of rivers, though it's not in the actual section. But one of the sections of this book is called Rivers. And as I pointed out to you, several of these poems are interested in geography. Um, uh, but there's an overlap of history, the Black experience, and that sort of thing. So the Blind Man is a river in Alberta um, that's kind of in central Alberta. And uh, eventually, I think it hooks up with the battle, I think. And then it, uh, I forget where it goes to. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this, is my, um, this is my version of the Blind Man uh, with different intersections in it that you'll pick up on. The Blind Man. 
This man slyly sidles, eyes silent, formates Pascapoo, mouths red deer, wanders, currently English, knowingly Cree, sight unsightly, swirls, swerves southward, homing in, meanders, meward, and swears like every gushing revisionary. I don't see color, man. And then I'll just give you one last one here. Very quick, um, I'm just trying to figure out which one I should do. So I mentioned that these are um, lyrical poems that uh, attempt to kind of re-envision the landscape of my um, biography, history, and that sort of thing. So this one is specific to um, the prairie landscape. Um, uh, one of the sections, actually, did I have prairies? I was going to do a section called Fields. Oh, it's called On the Prairies. Yeah, that's <laughs> what it's called. <laughs> and so some of the poems just look at fields and things like that. This one is called Clark Kent on the Prairies. It's the very mm. first poem in On the Prairies. Very one short of my one. my favorites. Oh, excellent. <laughs> um, page 31. Uh, and this is one of the first poems that I wrote um, for this collection. So it's almost 10 years old, this one. Wow. All right. Here we are on my particular version of the prairies. Clark Kent on the prairies. And how about that, eh? After all, he grew up here too, or somewhere else like here. Cornfields were his playgrounds. The echoes of spaciousness were bandied about by minute wildlife in his evening experience, sure. He could see for miles in any direction. And weren't these things our familiar too? Remember kryptonite? The chronic weakness? A chunk of the past recast as the recurring question of home? There you go. Amazing. My, my yeah. Both <laughs> those poems reverse. have such like heavy hitters for last lines or less <laughs> Last couplets, they just pack a real punch right at the end. Yeah, I thought of them like choruses, the, the ending. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. music. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. Ah, I thank mean... you so much for this conversation. I've loved this. And I hope other people really enjoy it. I yeah. love your poems. I love your questions. I love the way you think. I think that people have got a lot to anticipate with you. Yes, it's just going to be a chapbook, sure, yeah, <laughs> but it's going to be your chapbook, and I think that people are going to love reading it, for sure. Can't that's wait. That's so kind. Can't Thank wait. you so much. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, that second and third collection, when they come out, I'm going to be first in line. I'm going to make sure Glass has them ready to go. Um, yeah. All right. Did, did we mention, folks, the, uh, this podcast is known as Preach to the Choir? Did we mention Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, thank you so much. I mean, we're, we're so, so lucky to have you in this province, to have you doing the work that you do. Um, yeah, knowing that, that you're here and, and um, writing and writing on, it's like truly so, so heartening for me and for so many other writers, Black and otherwise. So thank yeah, you for sharing generous. space and time. Yeah. And, very um, welcome. And that's what I want to happen. I want everybody out there to feel that they can be a writer, that there is a place for them. Absolutely. So yes. thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for everyone for listening too. Yeah. Lovely chatting here. Yes. And uh, I hope everyone got something out of it. Uh, I really do apologize to any white person who felt as though I was making fun of you. <laughs> I 
<laughs> I really was not. Uh, but you have been in the company of uh, a lot of cheer and a lot of joy because Black yes. people have those things too. Mm-hmm. And um, as I said, I look forward to uh, reading and you should look forward to reading Magda's uh, upcoming uh, chapbook and anything else that we produce. Um, is there anything you wanted to add at the very end? Yeah, I'm just going to echo that that same thanks um, both to you and to everyone, everyone listening in or tuning in. Um, if you haven't already picked up this incredible collection, The Responsive Weeds, please do. Um, lots of great interviews that you've done as well on this book that were great to listen to uh, before we, we met in the Zoom room today. Um, and yeah, thank you to the Writers Guild of Alberta for giving us the opportunity to have this chat. Um, and also to, yeah, Read Alberta for, for sponsoring this series. So yeah, thanks so much and take thank good you. care, everybody. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Oh, that was fantastic.